0: Our passage today, as uh, David said a moment ago, is um, in John chapter 18. We're um, carrying on where Steve left off last week. So it's John chapter 18. Um, Steve finished at verse 14. So let's read the passage together. Um, And for connection, we'll start at verse 12. So I'm going to read down from verse 12 to verse uh, 27. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, that year. Caiaphas was the one who would advise the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about the disciples, about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Do you remember that famous Donald Rumsfeld quote what he said in response to a question about whether or not there was evidence for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, it's quite a famous one now, because at the time it was so, such a cryptic um, answer to give. But he said, there are known knowns, and there are known unknowns, and there are also unknown unknowns. I think we can use that answer in the context of many scriptures, including what we've just read here in John chapter 18. There's a lot that we know about what happened after Jesus was arrested, including three of the main characters in today's passage. We read about Jesus, Peter, and Annas. These details agree with the accounts in the other gospel narratives, so we can be very confident about them. There are also details that we know that we don't know. For example, we don't know the name of the other disciple who was with Peter, or what his relationship was with the high priest. We don't know the name of the servant girl who let Peter into the courtyard, or in fact, most of the other characters who were there. We don't know most of what was said inside the high priest's house or in the courtyard. Um, We know some of it from the other gospel accounts, but we know that we don't know the full dialogue. We also know that there are some significant differences between the gospels, Anomalies in the accounts about who said what and where. We can try to piece them together, but we know that we don't really know for sure why they're so different. And we know that Annas was not the high priest. But we don't know for sure, and I'll come back to this, why he's described as the high priest in the passage. Of course, some of these known unknowns aren't important, are they? And we can make our own judgments about anomalies when we notice them. Uh, Anomalies are just things that require further investigation. We can't always explain them, but it's often the case that we can, and often we can explain them quite confidently, um, as in the case of Annas, which, as I said, I'll, I'll come back to a little bit later. But what about unknown unknowns? Well, we don't know, do we? Um, But they must be there, because sometimes when we study the scriptures, we really do get a sense that we're only scratching the surface. Um, Of course, if we do see something beneath the surface, even if it's only the faintest of patterns or the hint of something worth digging into, we can start to ask questions about it. Um, But if we don't see anything to start with, then we can't even begin to ask questions and my point here is simply that we always need a lot of humility when we come to the scriptures to know that we don't have all the answers or even all the questions and therefore we we should never rush to say this means this and 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 that means that means that we need to be very careful but if we keep an open and an inquiring mind or as i was taught in the audit profession to have a restless curiosity And if we have a prayerful willingness to learn, then maybe the Spirit will lead us to the questions we should be asking, and maybe thereafter to the answers he wants us to find. So one reason I wanted to draw attention to what we know and what we don't know from Scripture is because when we take a passage like we have today and lay it alongside the parallel passages in the other Gospels, They just don't agree. It's like the writers only heard the story second or third hand and then just filled in missing details themselves in the in the same way that we might talk about something that we'd heard about. And some say that's evidence that the Bible is not divinely inspired. Others say that anomalies like these are just honest mistakes but the uh, underlying story and the message of the Bible is still true regardless of mistakes. And still others will say that actually, each writer just wrote from a different perspective and somehow, despite the apparent differences, each account is true in as much as it matters, even if we can't explain the differences. And I guess we're probably all in that third camp with that, aren't we? Um, but I'm not talking about blind faith here. As I said, with we've, we've research and study, many biblical um, anomalies can be quite reasonably answered. And that should give us the confidence to accept the things that we can't reconcile. So let me go back to Annas to give you an example of that. Because I implied that we might have an error in the text here where Annas is described in verses 19 down to verse 24 uh, as the high priest, even though verse 13 says very clearly that Caiaphas was actually the high priest and Annas was just his father-in-law. And and in verse 24, it says, um, after the first interrogation, Annas um, sent him, Jesus, bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So there was only ever one high priest. Why does John get it wrong? Well, actually, he doesn't, because Annas used to be the high priest. And we know from historical records that he was removed from office by the Romans. And it's quite likely that devout Jews, and we would consider John to be um, such a person, that they still considered the office of high priest to be a lifetime office, as it always was and therefore it would be very reasonable for them to think of Annas as still being the real high priest, and Caiaphas as just the high priest in in name only. So my point is, it's an anomaly which might look like a mistake, but we have a fairly good explanation for it. And we don't always have answers that we can be confident about. Sometimes we do just have to speculate, but in faith, we have to give the text the benefit of any doubt. And trust that despite the things that we can't reconcile at times, it still contains everything that God wants us to know. I hope you don't mind me going a little bit off piste with that, but it's important that we know that we can rely on the scriptures. And that includes knowing what to make of things that don't seem to add up, because as many critics of the Bible have pointed out, it really isn't very hard at all. To find inconsistencies, anomalies, and apparent errors if we we bother to look. So with all that in mind, I'm going to take John's account here as accurate, regardless of the different accounts in the other Gospels. And I'm not going to say a lot about the anomalies as we go through. Um, I might mention them as we go along. Um, But hopefully you'll see that the things that we don't know or can't explain really aren't important at all, to what we should learn from this passage. We basically have two overlapping stories, the account of Peter's denials and the account of the first interrogation of the Lord Jesus. I'm just going to look at the Peter story. Um, I've spoken to David King, who's doing the talk next week, and he's going to cover the other bit as part of the, um, the rest of the chapter which is all about the trials of the Lord Jesus so we're going to put those together as a, as a, as a theme um, next week. So I'm just going to look at the Peter story and it's, in some ways there's not really an awful lot to it, there's not a lot to the Peter story, it's just seven verses and it starts in verse 15 where we've got our first known unknown, uh, another disciple who was with Peter And he plays a really important part in the story, which the other gospel writers don't mention, um, actually. um, But we don't know who he is. Some say it was John, but that would seem to be unlikely because the John we know um, probably wouldn't have known the high priest particularly well. um, They wouldn't have been buddies. Uh, And probably wouldn't have had the influence to get Peter admitted into the high priest's um, courtyard. Um, So we don't we don't know who this other disciple was. Um, But whoever it was, this disciple speaks to a servant girl on duty. um, Peter's waiting outside the door. The girl lets Peter in. And at some point, she thinks she recognises him. And then if we put all the four Gospels together, either at the door Or later by the fire, the same servant girl or maybe a different servant challenges Peter about his identity and we get the first denial. So going back to my earlier point, it actually doesn't matter when she recognized him, does it? Or who it was that challenged Peter, actually, or even where the challenge took place. The key thing we learn is that Peter denied the Lord Jesus for the first time. The second denial was either at the fire, as John says, or, as Matthew and Mark say, it was outside the gates. The third denial seems to be back at the fire, but it may have been made by several people, or it may be just one person who noticed his Galilean accent, as the other three Gospels say, or, as John says, it was the person, a person who saw Peter with Jesus together at the time of his arrest. And it could quite possibly be a combination of all those possibilities. Again, the details don't matter. What matters is that Peter denied the Lord Jesus again and again. And one thing's for sure. Even though we might not be able to see this event quite as clearly as we would like to. We know that Jesus did. And he saw it before any of it happened. As Steve was saying last week from verse 4, Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him and how people would respond. He knew that his friend Judas would betray him. He knew all the disciples would desert him. And he knew, as we read back in chapter 13 a few weeks ago, that Peter, his right-hand man, Peter, who promised that he would even lay down his life for him, that before the cock crowed, Peter would disown him. Three times. That's the background to what must be the greatest failure in Peter's life. I'm not sure which phrase is more appropriate here. Pride comes before a fall, maybe, or perhaps... The bigger they are the greater they fall peter went from hero to zero in no time at all and all it took apparently was just three questions peter in many ways seems to have stood head and shoulders above the other disciples Throughout the Gospels, he's nearly always the one out front, the one who speaks the most, the one who seems to be the most brave, the one who seems to have been given special insights. And he was he was certainly a leader among the other disciples. And yet with all those positives, there were negatives, weren't there? Yes, he gave the boldest confession about the identity of Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, he said. But straight after that, he also dared to rebuke the Lord Jesus. He's the individual who was commended by Jesus the most, and he's also the one who was rebuked by Jesus the most. He had the faith to walk on water, but he also had to cry out, Lord, save me, when that faith failed and he sank beneath the water. He was super confident. He was brave enough to draw a sword when Jesus was arrested, but as we've just thought, he was disarmed by a servant girl. Asking one simple question. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Peter replied, I am not. So Peter had a spectacular fall, didn't he? And it reminds me of some of the scriptures which warn us all about the risk of falling. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, is addressing people in the circumstances of them encouraging others and helping to restore those who have fallen so we can assume that paul had in mind mature christians yeah. but then he writes but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted the message of revelations chapter 3 um, verse 17 is for those who don't know what they don't know they think they've got it all they think they're walking tall on the christian pathway that they're growing spiritually they don't realize that they are in the words of revelation three wretched pitiful poor blind and naked they'd fallen and they didn't even realize and then in first corinthians 8 verse 2 were warned about the pride of knowledge uh, it says we all possess knowledge but knowledge puffs up while love builds up Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. So it doesn't matter how devoted we are or how much we love the Lord or how confident or passionate or brave or how much insight and knowledge we think we've got. And Peter could tick all of those boxes, couldn't he? There's always the risk of a fall. Whether it's the fear of other people, which was Peter's weakness, I think, or getting the focus of our religion wrong, as um revelation 3 is is saying or succumbing to temptation as we saw in galatians 6 or even just the pride of religious knowledge first corinthians 8 in each case the warning of scripture is simply to be careful as it says in first corinthians 10 and 12 if you think you are standing firm be careful that you don't fall I think that warning applies to us all doesn't it? No matter how long we've been on the Christian pathway, no matter how respected we are, how well read we are, what roles and responsibilities we might have in Christian service, we are all vulnerable. You know the background um, to the job I used to have at the Lloyds Banking Group was the realisation that big multinational companies could fall, uh, no matter how big they are, that too many assumptions were being made of what about what people thought that they knew and who in senior positions could be trusted and what processes and controls worked. So I have WorldCom and Enron to thank for the last 10 years of my career, Uh, two global companies that everyone thought were too big to fail until they totally collapsed. And God says that could happen in your life too, like it did with Peter, if we're not careful. So what can we do? I guess there are many things we can do to be careful. We can be careful to stay close to Christian friends and coming together at church activities. Uh, That's the thought of togetherness in Hebrews 10 and 25. We can be careful not to neglect reading our Bibles and praying. We can be careful to put our religion into practice, a phrase that uh, Paul uses in 1 Timothy 5 about family responsibilities, but it goes so much further than that, as we see throughout the book of James. There's no point studying the faith if we don't put it into practice. We need to be careful about the places we go and the things that we do. We need to be careful about what we allow into our minds, our thought life, and and so it goes on. I'm not trying to make us feel fearful or to undermine the degree of confidence and trust that we ought to have in in each other. But the more we appreciate our vulnerability, I think, and the more we appreciate how much we don't know and how easily we can fall, the more careful we'll be and the more humility we'll have and the less judgmental we'll be of others. And the more we'll appreciate that wonderful truth of the gospel. That we're not saved because of anything that we've ever done or could ever do. We are saved by grace, a truth that Peter would come to appreciate more and more in due course. There's just one more thing from the story of Peter's denials that I'd like to leave us with and it's something that John misses out for some reason. We find it in Luke 22 and it happens right at the moment of the third denial I get the sense that the third denial went on for a while. It was more of an argument um, than a a quick question and answer. Um, It was an argument with um, the people who were convinced that Peter was one of the disciples. And according to Matthew and Mark, Peter is cursing and swearing and all sorts as he argues with these accusers. So maybe with all that going on, Peter doesn't notice that Jesus has been brought out into the courtyard. Um, maybe he doesn't realize that he's now in earshot of Jesus and maybe he'd forgotten what Jesus said about the cock crowing. We don't know what was going on in Peter's mind before it happened but at the moment of that third denial in Luke 22 it says that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter and Peter went outside And cried bitterly. There's a verse in Hebrews four that says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight; everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. One day, we know the Lord Jesus will look straight at us, and our lives will be assessed—the good and the bad. And like Peter, we won't be able to undo or redo any of it. We'll see later on in our series of talks how the Lord Jesus showed his love and forgiveness to Peter um, after the resurrection. But I imagine that Peter always looked back with regrets and wished that he'd done the right thing at the time. And maybe as you and I consider that future day, When we'll each meet Jesus face to face, the very anticipation of that moment will help each of us to do the right thing in the present, whenever we have a choice. It's not just about what answer we would give if someone asks us if we were a Christian or not. It's about everything we do and say, isn't it? Because by our actions, every day we answer that question, are you one of his disciples?